Okay, the big story today is what went on at Capitol Hill during the Senate confirmation hearings for the Health and Human Services Secretary, Rachel Levine. Rachel Levine, if confirmed, would be the first transgender to hold a cabinet position in an American administration. And if that isn't strange enough for you, things are about to get a lot stranger as we dig more deeply into this subject. Hi, everyone. I'm Jamie Dury, and welcome to another National Preview Online podcast. If you have not already done so, please subscribe to the show. You can do so one of three ways. You can either go to the iTunes App Store or the Google Play Store, depending on which device you use, and simply search for the NPO podcast and hit subscribe. Or you can download the Podbean app in one of the aforementioned app stores. It's a free app. You'll be subscribed, and you will be able to leave comments and reviews. We much prefer, though, that you listen with your native uh, phone app, be it Google Play Store or the iTunes uh, podcast app, so that you can leave reviews in those app stores. The more positive reviews and comments we receive, the more quickly the show will be discovered and the faster it will grow. And that is the objective, to grow the show so that we can bring you stories and information that other people simply aren't covering. And this is a case in point. Now, other news outlets definitely covered this story. I'm not suggesting they didn't. The New York Times did, I'm sure, the Post, the Epic Times, ABC, CNN, they've all covered it. But very, very obliquely, just in passing, not delving into it, because there's a lot more you need to know about Rachel Levine and what she stands for and who she is. Let me give you a little history. Rachel Levine, prior to becoming uh, Joe Biden's nominee, uh, was the Pennsylvania Secretary of Health. Now, she ran, for all intent and purposes, the state of Pennsylvania's COVID response. That's the job she did, and a pretty shitty job of it she made. Terrible disastrous COVID lockdowns are the terms being used. And this is potentially good news that she's being nominated um, as the Department of Health and Human Services Secretary. Uh, Good news for Pennsylvanians, that is, because she'll be out of their hair. Now, as I said, the news coverage of Levine's nomination is focused almost entirely on the fact that she would be the first transgender uh, official to ever be confirmed. Okay, it really just glosses over, it doesn't barely mention her handling handling of the pandemic uh, in uh, Pennsylvania. You're not going to find anybody criticizing her in places like CNN or National Public Radio or things like that. But Rachel Levine was severely criticized over her handling of the virus response and failed to mention that under Levine, Pennsylvania nursing homes were forced to accept COVID positive patients. Sound familiar? To you folks here in New York, same thing from Il Duce. Now, they tried to say it wasn't true. Uh, this is from an earlier article in the Times. After announcing the forthcoming nomination, Republicans began to attack Levine on social media. Uh, Newsweek published a laughable excuse for a fact check, asserting there's no evidence to report, uh, support the Republicans' claim that Levine placed coronavirus patients in nursing home facilities. This is laughable. The author of the article, Newsweek, seems to have failed research PA guidelines. The the claim that she was not responsible for this completely falls apart, since later 
the Pennsylvania Health Department made it very clear, uh, their guidelines rather, made it very clear that nursing homes had to accept and readmit COVID-positive patients and continue to accept new ones, even if they were COVID-positive. The guidance issued on May 12th of last year said that a positive, quote, a positive test is not a reason to refuse readmission to a resident. A nursing care facility must continue to take new admissions if appropriate beds are available and a suspected or confirmed positive for COVID-19 is not a reason to deny admission. Now, up until the fall or the winter surge in the cases and death, about 70% of all COVID fatalities in Pennsylvania took place in nursing homes. Since that surge, that number went down to about 50%. Uh, Even more disturbing than forcing nursing homes to accept patients is Levine's stated policy goal of social justice-based rationing of COVID treatments. This person is a loon, but she is a good liberal because it didn't stop her, him, it, whatever the hell it is, from sending her mother, I believe, not her father, her mother, out of a nursing home to a private facility where she wouldn't be exposed to COVID. So it's the classic liberal playbook. This is good for you. It's not good for me, but it's good for you. So you just stay there and go into that nursing home. Send your mom there. Let her croak. We don't care. My mom's not going to that nursing home. She's going to be in a special facility where she won't be around any COVID patients. But this is just the tip of the iceberg with Rachel Levine. Now, What brought this issue to the fore, which is why I wanted to cover it today, is the grave risk this woman, if appointed to this position, poses for Americans and particularly for our children. Any of you who are parents should listen to this show. And any parents who are listening to this show should share this podcast episode with anyone you know who has young children. Because what I'm about to tell you and read to you, I guarantee you've never been told before, and it will shock you to your core. What brought this issue to the fore was a YouTube clip that I happened to catch earlier today of Senator Rand Paul questioning Rachel Levine during the confirmation hearings. And it's very, very illuminating. I'm going to mention some of this. Now, ABC News calls her avoiding of answering the question. In their lexicon, that's gone to she deftly reflected in, and deflected inflammatory questions from a GOP senator who likened transgender surgery to genital mutilation. I want you to listen to this. These are the questions. Over an hour into the hearing, Rand Paul of Kentucky began questioning her. Quote, American culture is now normalizing the idea that minors can be given hormones about their biological development and their secondary sexual characteristics. This is Rand Paul speaking. He repeatedly asked Levine if she believed minors should be able to make decisions to amputate their breasts or amputate their genitalia, and if she supports the government intervening to override the parents' consent to give a child puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, and or amputation surgery of breasts and genitalia. 
Levine's response to this very specific and pointed question was a deflection. She deflected his misrepresentation, according to the article, of transgender surgery as genital mutilation. Uh, Thank you for your interest in this question, Levine said. Transgender medicine is a very complex and nuanced field with robust research and standards of care that have been developed. And if I'm fortunate enough to be confirmed as the Assistant Secretary of Health, I look forward to working with you and your office and coming to your office and discussing the particulars and the standards of care for transgender medicine. Rand Paul was not deterred and noted that she evaded the question and again asked the question, will you make a more firm decision on whether or not minors should be involved in these decisions? And again, Levine told Paul that there was not a blanket answer to this question, but she she would be happy to meet with him to explain. Senator, transgender medicine is very complex and nuanced field. Let it go into the record that the witness refused to answer the question. Later in the hearing, um, the committee chair, Senator Patty Murray of Washington, thanked Levine for her medical response to what she called Paul's harmful representations. Harmful? No, these were very accurate representations. That's one of the reasons why I wanted to do the show. Current people in power expect these minors to be able to make these decisions for themselves, and they want psychiatrists free to encourage these children to make these decisions for themselves and block any input from their parents. Now, have you had a conversation with a 13 or 12-year-old lately, they're more concerned with games than anything else. They know nothing about America. They know nothing about American history. They know nothing about, um, about life, period. And they certainly shouldn't be making these decisions. And I have something very powerful in that regard in a short while. It is really critical to me that our nominees be treated with respect and that our questions focus on their qualifications and the work ahead of us rather than ideological and harmful misrepresentations like those we heard from Senator Paul earlier. And I will focus on that as chair of this committee. So thank you again for your response, Murray said to Levine. Thank you for your response. Okay, the gloves are coming off. Let me explain something to you. I'm going to say it right out. Rachel Levine is a nut. She's a mental patient. And Joe Biden and his administration now want to put in charge of health and human services a person who is in need of an intervention, health and human services. This is the height of idiocy. idiocy. It is the height of lunacy. Now, how do I make such a sweeping statement like that with conviction? Well, I'm going to tell you. A number of years ago, when I still subscribed to the Wall Street Journal, I got rid of that rag a while ago when they turned on the president, the real president, Donald Trump, I came across a very, very interesting article as this transgender movement was gaining steam. This was before the presidential election of 2016. Now, this op-ed originally appeared on June 12th of 2014 in the Wall Street Journal. It was updated on May 13th, 2016, and reprinted. I went over the article before the show, the updated version, and I highlighted it. But I think it's so important that I'm probably going to read it almost in its entirety. The article is called Transgender Surgery Isn't the Solution. That's the title. The author is what really makes it here. The author is Dr. Paul McHugh, 
Now, he is the former psychiatrist-in-chief at John Hopkins University. He is the author of Try to Remember, Psychiatry's Clash Over Meaning, Memory, and Mind. Now, why do I mention all this? Well, because John Hopkins University, my friends, is the first medical institute in this country to perform what we used to call sex change operations. Now they call them euphemistically gender reassignment surgery. John Hopkins was the very first one, and they no longer do it. They refuse to do it. And this article is going to explain why. So don't get up and go to the bathroom. Don't stop the tape. Don't stop the disc. Don't stop the podcast. Listen to this article. The government and media alliance advancing the transgender cause has gone into overdrive in recent weeks. Now, this was back in 2016, but I guess you could say it's still uh, relevant because they're going into overdrive now with Rachel Levine. Policymakers and the media are doing no favors either to the public or the transgendered by treating their confusions as a right in need of defending rather than as a mental disorder that deserves understanding, treatment, and prevention. This intensely felt sense of being transgendered constitutes a mental disorder in two respects. The first is that the idea of sex misalignment is simply mistaken. It does not correspond with physical reality. The second is that it can lead to grim psychological outcomes. The transgendered suffer a disorder of assumption, like those in other disorders familiar to psychiatrists. With the transgendered, the disordered assumption is that the individual differs from what seems to be given in nature, namely one's maleness or femaleness. Other kinds of disordered assumptions are held by those who suffer from anorexia and bulimia nervosa, where the assumption that departs from physical reality is the belief by the dangerously thin that they are overweight. With body dysmorphic disorders, an often socially crippling condition, the individual is consumed by the assumption, I'm ugly. These disorders can occur in subjects who have come to believe that some of their psychosocial conflicts or problems will be resolved if they can change the way that they appear to others. Such ideas work like ruling passions in their subjects' minds and tend to be accompanied by a solipsistic, (laughs) sorry, tongue twister, solipsistic argument. The feeling that if it's in their mind, that's it, it's true. For the transgendered, This argument holds that one's feeling of gender is a conscious, subjective sense that being in one's mind cannot be questioned by others. The individual often seeks not just society's tolerance of this, quote, personal truth, but affirmation of it. And departing from the article now, we see this in other areas, do we not? When people want same-sex marriage, look, a lot of people don't care if people get married the same sex. I might not care. Uh, You might not care. People want to do it, fine. But then when they force other people to acknowledge it, they just don't want to be able to have it. They want other people to have to be forced to say, yeah, yeah, you're normal. You're okay. Yeah, we'll make your wedding cake. They want affirmation. They not only want to be allowed to do these things, they want to shove it down your throat and have you forced to say that it's normal when it's not. The article goes on. Here rests the support for transgender equality. The demands for government payment for medical and surgical treatments and for access to all sex-based public roles and privileges. 
With this argument, advocates for the transgendered have persuaded several states, including California, New Jersey, and Massachusetts, to pass laws barring psychiatrists, even with parental permission, from striving to restore natural gender feelings to a transgender minor. That government can intrude into parents' rights to seek help in guiding their children indicates how powerful these advocates have become. Now, you didn't miss interpret what I just said. In California, New Jersey, and Massachusetts, advocates have passed laws that will prevent psychiatrists from striving to restore natural gender feelings to a transgender minor. That means you as a parent in California, New Jersey, or Massachusetts, take your son or daughter to a psychiatrist and say, doctor, we need your help. Our son wants to change himself to a woman. He's only 12 years old. My daughter wants to be a man. She's only 11 years old. Doctors can't do it. Parents are shut out. No, no, it's what it is. And they liken it to years ago when parents came to a doctor and said, my son is gay, fix him. Now, it may sound convenient to liken it to that. But ladies and gentlemen, that's not the same thing. People who are gay... They don't have any doubts about who they are. A gay man doesn't look in the mirror and see a woman. He sees a man. A lesbian woman doesn't look in the mirror and see a man. She sees a woman. Their disorder is not a body dysmorphic disorder or a mental disorder. It's just a preference. They prefer, they're attracted to other men. Lesbians are attracted to other women. Some people like chicken, some people like steak. But they're not at odds with who they are. They know who they are. They're men and they're women. They acknowledge it. They don't say they're incorrectly trapped in a different person's body. They don't say to themselves, well, since I'm a man and I'm attracted to men, I therefore must be a woman, so let me get a sex change. No, they don't do that. So you can't compare the two. How do we respond? The article goes on. Psychiatrists obviously must challenge the solipsistic concept that what is in the mind cannot be questioned. Disorders of consciousness, after all, represent psychiatry's domain. Declaring them off-limits would eliminate the field. Many will recall how in the 1990s, an accusation of parental sex abuse of children was deemed unquestionable by the solipsists of the recovered memory craze. Remember that? And that went by the wayside, and we found out how a lot of those things were influenced after the fact, and people were remembering things that actually never occurred. You won't hear it from those championing transgender equality, but controlled and follow-up studies reveal fundamental problems with this movement. When children who report, listen to this, parents, when children who reported transgender feelings were tracked without medical or surgical treatment at both Vanderbilt University and London's Portman Clinic, 70 to 80% of them spontaneously lost those feelings. Yet, as I just mentioned, in New Jersey, Massachusetts, and California, these people could have been encouraged to get surgery. That was now irreversible. When if they'd only waited it out, 70 or 80% of them would have spontaneously lost those feelings because they weren't real to begin with. Some 25% did have persisting feelings. What differentiates those individuals remains to be discerned. But we do know that the overwhelming majority of the children who reported experiencing these feelings had them spontaneously disappear. 
without medical or surgical treatment. Dr. McHugh goes on. We at John Hopkins University, which in the 1960s was the first American medical center to venture into sex reassignment surgery, launched a study in the 1970s comparing the outcomes of transgendered people who had the surgery with the outcomes of those who did not. Most of the surgically treated patients describe themselves as satisfied by the results, but their subsequent psychosocial adjustments were no better than those who didn't have the surgery. And so at John Hopkins, we stopped doing sex reassignment surgery since producing a, quote, satisfied but still troubled patient seemed an inadequate reason for surgically amputating normal organs. It now appears that our long-ago decision was a wise one. A 2011 study at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden produced the most illuminating results yet regarding the transgendered, evidence that should give advocates pause. The long-term study, listening, up to 30 years, followed 324 people who had sex reassignment surgery. The study revealed that beginning about 10 years after having the surgery, the transgendered began to experiencing increasing mental difficulties. Most shockingly, their suicide mortality rate rose to almost 20-fold, that means 20 times, above the comparable non-transgender population. This disturbing result has, as yet, no explanation, but probably reflects the growing sense of isolation reported by the aging transgendered after surgeries. The high suicide rate certainly challenges the surgery prescription. And I must say, speaking for myself, that this very, very high suicide rate in these post-surgical transgendered individuals is probably an indication and a verification, an affirmation, to use a word, that these people are suffering from mental disorder and were disturbed even before they had the surgery. The article goes on. There are subgroups of the transgendered, and for none does reassignment seem apt. One group includes male prisoners like Private Bradley Manning, the convicted national security leaker who now wishes to be called Chelsea. Facing long sentences and the rigors of a men's prison, they have an obvious motive for wanting to change their sex and hence their prison. Given that they committed their crimes as males, they should be punished as such. After serving their time, they will be free to reconsider their gender. And they can pay for it. That's me speaking. How dare they commit crime as men and then want to be given a soft sentence by being changed into women and ask us to have to pay for it, the taxpayer. We're paying for enough, I think. Another subgroup, the article says, consists of young men and women susceptible to suggestion from everything is normal sex education, amplified by internet chat groups. These are the transgender subjects most like anorexia nervosa patients. They become persuaded that seeking a drastic physical change will banish their psychosocial problems. Diversity counselors in their schools, rather like cult leaders, may encourage these young people to distance themselves from their families and offer advice on rebutting arguments against having transgender surgery. Treatments here must begin with removing the young person from the suggestive environment and offering a counter-message in family therapy. 
Then there is the subgroup of very young, often prepubescent children, who noticed distinct sex roles in the culture and exploring how they fit in, begin imitating the opposite sex. Misguided doctors at medical centers, including Boston Children's Hospital, have begun trying to treat this behavior by administering puberty-delaying hormones to render later sex change surgeries less onerous, even though the drugs stunt the children's growth and risk-causing sterility. Given that close to 80% of such children would abandon their confusion and grow naturally into adult life if untreated, these medical interventions come close to child abuse. In my opinion, ladies and gentlemen, they don't come close to child abuse. They are child abuse, licensed by the state. A better way to help these children? With devoted parenting. At the heart of the problem is confusion over the nature of the transgendered. Sex change is biologically impossible. People who undergo sex reassignment surgery do not change from men to women or vice versa. Rather, they become feminized men or masculinized women. Claiming that this is a civil rights matter and encouraging surgical intervention is in reality to collaborate with and promote a mental disorder. This from Dr. Paul McHugh, former head of psychiatry at John Hopkins University. So that's why I wanted to cover this story today. And I encourage you, if you have children, to listen to this thing again. If you have friends who have children, to refer them to this podcast This story was covered only in passing by the media. They did not get into it like I did today. But that is what this administration, just one aspect of what they're looking to bring to you. This is a harbinger of everything else that's going to come down the pike from this mentally defective man that they've installed as a puppet president and this communist who sits at his right hand as vice president. They have a person with a mental disorder that they want to put in charge of health and human services. A a person who is in desperate need of health and human services herself is going to decide who lives, who dies, who gets treated, and who doesn't. And as I told you before, we know what kind of track record she has from the death and destruction she wielded in Pennsylvania when she was in charge of their COVID-19 pandemic response. People died in nursing homes in droves, just as they did under Il Duce here in New York. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. For National Preview Online, I'm Jamie Dury.